and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We begin with the summit meeting today in Geneva between President Biden and President Putin, which both leaders characterized as constructive since they did get a lot of work done, then cut it short after a little over half of the time allotted, having agreed on the need to shore up strategic stability between the two nuclear-armed countries. Joining us to assess the meeting and the two press conferences that followed is Timothy Fry, a professor of post-Soviet foreign policy at Columbia University and a research director at the Higher School of Economics in Moscow, whose latest book is Weak Strongman, The Limits of Power in Putin's Russia. We will discuss the press conferences that followed with Putin taking questions from CNN, the BBC and the Western press, even though there is little to no press freedom in Russia, while Biden, in his avuncular way, explained to the American press why he is positive and upbeat, suggesting they always take a pessimistic approach to covering stories. Then we will speak with Dr. Lance Dotis, a former clinical professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, about the recent interview he did at Salon, Trump's psychosis is still an enormous danger. We'll discuss Putin's shout-out to the January 6 far-right rabble as a signal of his support for Trump and how the cult-like grip Trump has over his followers and the GOP could lead to Donald Trump turning America into a police state since the Republican Party is looking like Putin's united Russia and the GOP is in the process of dismantling American democracy. Then finally we'll speak with Jesse Isinger, the Pulitzer Prize winning senior reporter at ProPublica about his latest investigation at ProPublica, The Secret IRS Files trove of never-before-seen records reveal how the wealthiest avoid taxes. We will discuss the astronomical rise in the wealth of the super-rich who pay little to no taxes, as is the case with Amazon's Jeff Bezos, whose ex-wife just gave $2.7 billion to community colleges while he plans to take a trip into space. And joining us now is Timothy Fry, Professor of Post-Soviet Foreign Policy at Columbia University and a Research Director at the High School of Economics in Moscow. His books include Building States and Markets After Communism, The Perils of Polarized Democracy, and his latest book just out is Weak Strongmen, The Limits of Power in Putin's Russia. Welcome to Background Briefing, Timothy Fry. Thanks for the invitation. Well, thanks for joining us. And it looks like uh, the one thing that Biden and Putin share is that they both said it was a very successful meeting. In fact, Putin said, of course, there has been no hostility. On the contrary, our meeting took place in a constructive spirit. And then he went on to quote Tolstoy saying, there is no happiness in life, there are only glimmers of it. And I think that in this situation, there can't be any kind of family trust, but I think we've seen some glimmers. So how did it strike you as Timothy? Yeah, I think that's right. I, I mean, I think that the summit lived up to its low expectations, that there were no great surprises the narrow agenda that both sides had agreed to um, seems to have been fulfilled. We have the return of ambassadors uh, in both countries, which was a bare minimum. Uh, we have commitments to discuss strategic stability and uh, trying to regulate relations in the cybersphere. 
and a lot of talk uh, talking groups uh, on other uh, related issues that may or may not go anywhere. But I think both sides wanted to put some floor under the relationship. And for Biden, if it turns out that uh, the talks don't lead anywhere and relations continue to spiral downward, he can at least point to the summit, point to the extension of the New START arms control treaty and say, uh, I I did what I could. I tried to improve relations with Russia. And I think that's something uh, important for him to to be able to say. And... Why do you think it happened in the first place? Because obviously out of the gate, uh, Biden was criticized for giving Putin the gift of a summit because it was, after all, Biden who initiated it. My understanding is that in that build-up to the threat of war with Ukraine, where the Russians deployed over 100,000 troops and equipment on the Ukrainian border, as when they did that, they also went to full nuclear alert. And as far as I'm concerned, nuclear alert in Russia means that we know where those missiles are pointed. They're pointed at the United States. So it's obviously different if you pull a gun on somebody and put it in their face. If you don't pull the trigger, it's still a threatening and unacceptable thing to do. So that apparently got the White House's attention. Is that why Biden... Because Biden also gave, seemed to have given Putin a gift with taking sanctions off the Stasi guy that's ahead of Nord Stream 2. Do you think that there's anything to that, that Biden basically said, this is a little out of control and we gotta, we got to talk? I have a slightly different interpretation, um, although I think you're right that the, the buildup around Ukraine was definitely to send a message both to Kiev and to Washington that Russia has military cards to play in eastern Ukraine and they will, are willing to play them. Uh, so I think that's definitely true. Uh, on the Nord Stream 2 um, decision, I think Biden thought that shoring up Germany's role in the European alliance was so critical uh, to accomplishing anything in relations with Russia and recognizing that the pipeline was already 95% built and was likely to be completed anyway that he thought that the lesser of two evils was to go ahead with the Nord Stream 2 uh, waiver that will allow the pipeline to be finished. My sense is that um, Biden would like to shore up relations with Europe uh, and turn attention to China. And by dealing with Russia, or at least starting talks with Russia, he buys himself some time and some, uh, you know, goodwill should relations go south. And this is an attempt, I think, to put U.S.-Russian relations in one silo so that they could focus on other topics um, that are more important uh, for the White House. And that's why having a, a summit with a very narrow agenda, with commitments to, to, for further talks, uh, was a reasonable strategy for the Biden White House. And again, I'm speaking with Timothy Fry, who is a professor of post-Soviet foreign policy at Columbia University and a research director at the Higher School of Economics in Moscow. His books include Building States and Markets After Communism, The Perils of Polarized Democracy, and his latest book just out is Weak Strongman, The Limits of Power 
in Putin's Russia. And in terms of the limits of power in Putin's Russia, is there anything to some rumours I've heard from KGB, ex-KGB people that Putin's under threat from the right with Nikolai Petrushev and other hawks, <coughs> nationalists. I mean, one of the theories I've heard is that, for example, Sergei Ivanov, his former chief of staff, was purged, but he came from that cadre of, of the KGB that were the sophisticated international people, most of whom, when the Soviet Union collapsed, went and found other work and that the level of people in the KGB is, this is like the third and fourth tier, in effect, the, the thugs and thieves, and that Russia has sort of become a kleptocracy regulated by the intelligence services, uh, all of whom are incredibly corrupt. And you've seen how many operations they've bungled, including trying to poison Navalny. So none of that happened during the Cold War. So... Is there anything to that that so, he may be under threat from the right? In other words, there are worse people than Putin waiting in the wings and maybe Biden was doing him a favor? Uh, so I, I would put it like this, that, uh, you know, Putin, uh, like most autocrats, has to keep people within his inner circle happy. And he also has to keep people from protesting on the streets. And Putin, for a long time, was able to use strong economic performance foreign policy successes like the annexation of Crimea, personal popularity uh, uh, to shore up his popular support. Uh, and this allowed him to play off the inner, the inner circle and the mass public uh, and have some more freedom for maneuver. What we've seen recently is the economy's been stagnant for a decade. There are no easy foreign policy victories. Propaganda is becoming less effective and trust in Putin has fallen. And these are all things that might lead the security services to, to play a greater role over policymaking. And some evidence of that may be the increase in uh, coercion and political repression that we've seen, particularly targeted at Alexei Navalny and his organization. So if in the past Putin was able to balance off a kind of liberal westernizer wing among the, the Kremlin insiders against the you know, security services wing, uh, the latter is clearly dominant uh, at this moment. But during the Cold War, all American presidents negotiating with Brezhnev and then later with Andropov, in fact, during Andropov's time, there were fewer political prisoners in Russia, in the Soviet Union, than there are in Russia today. There's about 400, apparently. Mm -hmm. So, in all of the American presidents, the first thing on their agenda was to free Soviet political prisoners, like Andrei Sakharov, etc. Yes. So, it doesn't look like that, that went on at all. And, of course, we know that Putin will not even mention Navalny's name. Yes. So... What about the human rights stuff? And yeah. Biden said he talked about it, but yes. it seems like that's the last thing that interests Putin. I think it is uh, something that Putin does not want to talk about. You, uh, He was asked twice about this during his press conference, and he gave the same pat answer, and not a particularly persuasive one, that uh, Navalny chose to leave the country uh, and thereby violate his parole arrangements. So he knew that he would be arrested when he came back into Russia. 
you know, putting all the blame uh, on uh, on Navalny for not obeying Russian law, which I don't think uh, will uh, persuade anybody outside of Russia, and likely a lot of people in Russia will uh, roll their eyes. And he made that case twice. Biden, you know, I think it was important for him to say, look, all presidents, uh, you know, all U.S. presidents talk about human rights because that's who we are as a country. Uh, left unsaid, of course, was that his predecessor was very much unwilling to talk at all about uh, human rights. One area where there does seem to have been some progress is on the exchange of uh, Russian nationals in U.S. prisons and American nationals in Russian prisons um, and some possibility for Paul Whelan and uh, the other American citizen that is, whose name uh, I'm forgetting right now for them to be to be swapped, which, of course, I think at a humanitarian level would be a good thing. And what about this idea that was floated at the NATO conference, and I don't know, neither of us would, of course, know whether it came up in the discussions. I think it might have been brought up in the questions in the in Biden's press conference. But uh, there was obviously talk about cybersecurity. I mean, it's hardly a coincidence that they attacked these two symbols of America, gasoline for your car and hamburger <laughs> for the, from the meatpacking company. And this is a, this Russian group called the Dark Side, who clearly are under the control and regulated by the FSB in, in Russia. And now, of course, Putin can say, well, I, and in fact, Biden's going to put him on probation, say, you know, roll these guys up, mm -hmm. the cyber attackers. So, but when it gets really interesting or perhaps frightening, is when there's talk of invoking Article 5 of NATO's treaty in the case of a major cyber attack from Russia. In other words, you know, going to uh, the defense of mm -hmm. a country that's attacked, it's just a, if Article 5 was invoked by the NATO members who joined the US in Afghanistan after the 9-11 attack. So the idea that cyber which is an aspect of modern warfare, could become a threshold to retaliate against Russia is an area that's been raised but not explored. It's a very difficult area if in nuclear arms uh, discussions and even in military relations there are uh, norms that both sides understand and respect. Uh, in the cyber area, it's much less clear and if we look to date, we, you know, we haven't seen uh, cyber attacks against military uh, assets. You know, they've been directed more towards commercial assets or governmental assets. So some people argue that kind of deterrence works at a kind of high level strategic level. But beneath that, you know, the rules are wide open and what people often fear is an escalation of an attack that, say, would start on a commercial asset. But then in the response by, you know, the, the country that was targeted, you know, they may target something that has dual use, civilian and military use. And then the other side might consider that, you know, an attack on its military assets. So you're, you're absolutely right, I think, to point to the potential for misunderstandings and escalations in this area. And 
that Biden had an interesting remark where he said to Putin, you know, it would, you know, you know, if one of your gas pipelines was hit, I'm sure you wouldn't like it either, which, you know, one could read that as a, you know, subtle threat of, you know, nice pipeline you have here it would be a shame if something happened to it. Um, and I'm, I imagine that that's how Putin uh, interpreted it. So I think there's a lot of work to be done on, the, on defining the rules of the road in, uh, in, in cybersecurity. Well, just in closing, Timothy, was Putin trolling the U.S. about supporting these right-wing neo-Nazis and white nationalists and Trump supporters who stormed the Capitol on January the 6th? The character who had his feet up on Nancy Pelosi's desk has been featured on Russian state TV heavily, and Putin has made this false equivalence about any, any American criticism of political rights in Russia uh, equal somehow that these January the 6th clowns that attacked the Capitol, killed a policeman, Mm -hmm. tried to hang the vice president, wanted to murder AOC, defecated on the floors of the Senate, etc., that somehow that's equivalent to criticizing the lack of political freedom in Russia. How's that playing i mean it obviously would have wouldn't have played with biden but is it playing in russia i mean so biden uh uh, you know was quick to point out that this was a ridiculous comparison and i think that was the strongest kind of negative statement he said he made about putin personally the whole litany of criticisms of the u.s is you know from President Putin's greatest hits, you know, we, we, all of these criticisms. And this particular comparison, uh, I think, doesn't play that well, be, even within Russia, in that, you know, Russians recognize that the U.S. political system differs quite a bit uh, from uh, the Russian political system. So, the fact that this event happened, I think, is really a black mark on uh, the United States. Uh, but Putin trying to use it to, you know, poke the eye of the United States, I think, doesn't makes him look unserious internationally. And although it may have some effectiveness at home, I think the broader picture uh, is such that the differences between the two countries are so great that most Russians can can, can sure. see that. And if a, and if a group of Russians tried to storm the Kremlin, they'd <laughs> be right. shot dead in a heartbeat. Well, Timothy Fry, thank you very much for joining us here today. It was my pleasure. And again, I mean, speak with Timothy Fry, he's a professor of post-Soviet foreign policy at Columbia University and a research director at the Higher School of Economics in Moscow. His books include Building States and Markets After Communism, The Perils of Polarized Democracy. And his latest book is Weak Strongmen, The Limits of Power in Putin's Russia. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back speaking about why Trump's psychosis is still an enormous danger. Hi there, this is Sean Canan. I'm Director of News and Public Affairs here at WMNF. And this is a pre-recorded message. I wish I were here in person to be able to thank Mary and Arlene for all their decades of service to WMNF. Mary and Arlene do such great interviews on From a Woman's Point of View, and we're sad to see that they're taking a break right now. But I also want to let you know that to continue the tradition of women-centered programming, the Surly Feminists, the Surly Voices for a Revolution, will be on Tuesday morning 
mornings at 10 beginning next week. So just wanted to let you know there will be great women's programming at 10 on Thursdays. But I so much want to thank Mary Glennie and Arlene Inglehart for all of their hard work at WMNF. And I very much am sad to see them go. Thanks so much for all your work, Mary and Arlene. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Lance Dodas, a training and supervising analyst emeritus with the Boston Psychoanalytic Society and Institute, who was a clinical professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Dodas is a contributor along with 36 other psychiatrists and mental health experts who have contributed to the book Assessing President Trump, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump. 37 psychiatrists and mental health experts assess a president updated and expanded with new essays. And there's an interview with Dr. Dodis at Salon, which we'll link to at backgroundbriefing.org. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lance Dodis. Good to be with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And as we were just talking about, Lance, with a, an expert on Russia, there's no doubt that there's an alliance between the American right and Putin. And, in fact, Putin has lied with the right and the neo-Nazis, etc., across Western Europe. But the idea that the Russian state media is, is making a hero out of that clown who, who during the January 6th riot, put his feet up on Nancy Pelosi's death, he's become a, a Russian hero on Russian state TV. Of course, if any Russian tried to attack the Kremlin, they'd be shot in a heartbeat. But this is what's going on, and it seems to me to be a real signal on Putin's part to that base and to Trump that I'm with you in 2024. But I think the worst aspect of this, Lance, is that Tucker Carlson on Fox is now calling the January 6th insurrectionists FBI plants. The GOP has weaponized Trump's big lie into a massive assault on American democracy. They're attacking the vote with gerrymandering and voter suppression and then when they when you get to count the vote they have partisan republican legislatures that will then count and certify the vote and they're also conducting a bullying war against people that work in polling places and driving them out the independent neutral people and putting in these crazy partisan QAnon types like they have down in arizona so American democracy is under attack by a GOP that is almost identical to Putin's United Russia Party. This is a party that dominates the Duma because <laughs> they make sure the other side can't vote and can't field candidates. So here we are. This is what we're facing. So it seems to me that the biggest challenge Biden has is not what he just went through talking to Putin in Geneva, the biggest challenge he has is when his plane lands in at Andrews Air Force Base in getting the American people to understand that we are heading towards Putin's Russia and American democracy is under attack by these very forces that were unleashed on January the 6th that the GOP is now in bed with. Yeah, I think that everything that you said is absolutely right. You know, just from a psychological standpoint, we know that Trump is uh, grandiosely delusional and that he's a sociopath. So what he wants to be is the dictator like Putin or like the North Korean dictator or any of the others throughout history, Hitler, Stalin. 
Um, and uh, so it is in Putin's interest, I'm sure, to have Trump in office. Uh, he uh, would be a, uh, would have an enemy of a free and democratic United States. Uh, but if he has a dictator with whom he can make a deal, which is just what Trump wants to do, with, as he did with other dictators earlier, uh, I mean, when he was president, you know, that's perfect for Putin. And then uh, you can have two dictators who are allied and try to divide up the world uh, between them. And in your interview at Salon, uh, Dr. Dodis, you point out that Trump's most extreme devotees, that these are the types that assaulted the Capitol, are members of a charismatic cult and that these followers close themselves off from accurate and rational information in order to protect their connection to the godlike cult leader and to avoid questioning his delusional views, which would cause them to be shunned or expelled from the group. So the challenge, therefore, is in this country is to break that spell. So how do you break the spell of this belief system that is fantastical and delusional and somehow get some of these people, not all of them obviously, not the QAnon types, to accept the truth that this guy is a fraud, a fake prophet, and a criminal, and a traitor. Yeah, well, I think the only hope, as you said, is not going to come from the people who are uh, in the cult, but are going to, is going to come from those people who are... Uh, it's like a swing voter in an election. Those people who could go either way, you might say. And there can't possibly be 74 million people who are that easily conned in the country. I mean, they have been easily conned. That's already happened. But there can't be 74 million people who are unable to see the uh, truth when it is finally made clear to them. I think it's one of these things that uh, will hinge on a, a break point, as happens uh, you know, in other areas where suddenly the, the entire the paradigm shifts, the belief system shifts, because one thing has finally uh, been the uh, straw that broke the camel's back. For Trump, it could be uh, his finally being convicted of one of his many crimes in, in New York, for example. Um, uh, it could be uh, if they ever stop um, terrifying the people who would uh, 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 sue him for sexual assault, if they ever allow them to if they convince them to speak up. It could be something like that. Um, uh, I think that probably has to happen first. But it is so much more difficult than with the case of another leader, let's say a popular entertainment leader or a popular sports figure, where there's a sudden shift from pro to anti, uh, because of the Republican Party. And the people in Congress, uh, by that I mean the congressmen, the, the people in Congress who are pro-Trump are not probably not members of his cult. I think if you could get them in a private room and know that they would, they know if they knew that they would never be quoted, they'd probably say, "We know he's crazy. We know, you know, we know he's delusional." But our personal careers and our our seats in Congress depend on uh, following him. So these are simply amoral or immoral people who are willing to give up the country and willing to give up democracy in order to hold on to power. Um, and, you know, that's a, different, that's a different calculus. I don't think they care about a change, except if it's a change that will cost them their seats. So I think you may have to have a sea change in the, uh, in the way the country sees uh, Trump 
before you'll get all of a sudden then the Congress people say, oh no, we never really thought that. My goodness, we're shocked that he's this kind of person and then they would change in order to hold on to their seats. And again, I'm speaking with Lance Dowdis, who's a training and supervising analyst emeritus with the Boston Psychoanalytic Society and Institute, who was a clinical professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Dowdis is a contributor, along with 36 other psychiatrists and mental health experts who have contributed to the book Assessing President Trump, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump. 37 psychiatrists and mental health experts assess a president. And there is an interview with Dr. Dowdis at Salon, which we will link to at backgroundbriefing.org. Now... In your interview at Salon, Lance, you you were asked that question of what would break the spell, and <clears throat> you said if Trump is charged and arrested for his alleged crimes and his base of support crumbles, he could not accept going to jail. He would be more likely to flee the country, perhaps by himself a remote island that is controlled by a friendly dictator and declare himself king. Now, <laughs> I think uh, my understanding is that, that he actually has a plane standing by in Florida to fly him to Cuba and then on to um, Russia. So not too far-fetched. No, I don't think, I really don't think it's far-fetched. I, I mean, he, he could never possibly accept going to jail. I, you know, somehow they would try to keep him out of jail, I assume. But I think that uh, if it got too hot for him, yeah, he would leave. It isn't, you know, one of the things that's important about that concept, whether it happens or not, is it's important to understand that he cares nothing for America. His whole political uh, scheme was to say, uh, make America great and I am America. But he cares nothing at all. for the. Obviously, if you define the country as a decent place that is a democratic institution, he cares nothing about it. He would be just as happy to be uh, uh, the king of his own island or the king of uh, Russia, if that were possible. It's not America. It's Trump. Everything is Trump. So, uh, he, he, sure, he has, he, there's, no, there's no love for, uh, for this country. He, he, he would go wherever he could be uh, uh, grandiose and, uh, you know, uh, worshipped. But given that we have become like Russia in the sense that the GOP is now just like Putin's party united Russia. They have rigged the playing field. They would rather cheat than compete and they've made sure at least in terms of the mechanics of an election that they're going to win. They're gerrymandering, voter suppression then by controlling the vote and counting it and certifying it through partisan Republican legislatures, and then they have launched this campaign, which is heavily funded by the Koch brothers and this Opus Dei character, Leonard Leo, with the Judicial Crisis Network, who put put Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Coney Barrett on the on the Supreme Court. They're pouring money into it. This is happening. Uh, you know, poll workers are quitting in droves because their lives are being threatened, and these whack jobs that are conducting this fake audit in Arizona are taking over polling places across the country. So it's all happening before our eyes. And for, I don't know why the Democrats aren't, don't have their hair on fire, frankly. So your conclusion is that a more unraged, more paranoid, more psychotic, more violent, and more dangerous Donald Trump would turn America into a police state. Well, the GOP is already turning America away from democracy, so then the door is open for Donald Trump to turn America into a police state. Oh, sure. Uh, you know, it's, I, 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 this is not far-fetched at all, not only for all the reasons you said that it's already happening, 
But, you know, it's happened how many times? Hundreds, thousands of times in human history. There are always dictators, that uh, tyrants that arise. I mean, they're, they're all over the place. So we have long thought that uh, uh, America was, was unique, that we were different from other places. And, of course, uh, for a long time, we were in design. I mean, that's the Constitution. But uh, there was no reason to think that we as a people were exceptional, except that we had an exceptional history, which we, for a long time, accepted as the norm. Everybody, you know, if you were an American, that meant something in terms of your moral values and your belief in democracy. That's changing. And that would make us, you know, how does that make us different from Germany in, in 1932 or, or uh, any of the other uh, dictatorships that we've known throughout history? Uh, you know, I agree. It's it's a, it's an emergency situation. It's terrible. I'm not sure why the Democrats don't have their hair on fire. I I, uh, I, I keep hoping that we don't know about what's going on in back rooms where they are talking and, and doing things effectively. But who knows? Uh, I just have to hope for that. So do you think, though, that the work that you've done and, and Bandy Lee, who edited the book that you contributed to the dangerous case of Donald Trump. She got actually got f fired by Yale, didn't she? Yes, so she, that, yes she did. So there's been some yeah. pushback against uh, her, at least. So the clarity that you bring to Donald Trump as a psychiatrist, because he is so clearly a sick man, and he's always been delusional. When he first came on the political scene, I talked to a lot of businessmen who dealt with him, and they said he was completely delusional. He talked about himself all the time. And they just couldn't wait to get out of these meetings with him. Um, mm -hmm. But we know from the very first day of his presidency, he was completely delusional about the, the huge crowds at his inauguration, which, uh, of course, were a delusion. And he goes across to the CIA, and, and that's all he talks about, is these huge mythical crowds. So there's no question about it. So why, why punish somebody like Bandy Lee? I mean... The, oh, well, this, that... I complete, uh, you know, it's terrible. I mean, Yale is being sued now, and I hope that uh, I hope that she wins her suit. There's a fellow named Crystal, who's the head of psychiatry at uh, at Yale, who fired her, and he fired her because she spoke out against Trump at the at behest of Alan Dershowitz. Uh, if you know the whole story, there, Dershowitz is a graduate of Yale Law School, and he um, he complained that uh, she had said something about him, which he distorted. So they fired her, but the reason they fired her was based on this idiotic and, and amoral, immoral Goldwater rule of the American Psychiatric Association, which says psychiatrists have to be gagged. You cannot speak out against a public figure. And you know, <laughs> there's a long history there, but it's simply immoral, their stance. It was, it's self-serving. It has no legitimate medical reason behind it, and it's harmful to the country. So. He claimed that that was the standard, but it's not the standard. It's 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 the self-serving uh, rule of the American Psychiatric Association, so that they don't get sued or get embarrassed. Uh, it was it's terrible. I hope that uh, uh, Crystal is reprimanded and uh, that Yale uh, takes her back. So Mandy Lee gets fired by Yale at the behest of Dershowitz, who was best friends with the disgraced child sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein and according to some of the young women that were trafficked by him was one of their customers one of Jeff Jeffrey Epstein's customers mm 
he gets off, he he, <laughs> he gets to sue, and nobody sues him. I mean, I think he's actually suing the young women, by the way, that uh, were trafficked by uh, Epstein. Yeah. Well, of course, Dershowitz became a very prominent Trump supporter, and and he was he he, he used the uh, this horrible Goldwater rule uh, as an excuse to uh, to complain. Um, but you know, he, he he didn't know what he was talking about, and he's just he's just a Trump follower. Well, Lance Davis, I thank you very much for joining us here today. It's my pleasure. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Lance Dodis, who's a training and supervising analyst emeritus with the Boston Psychoanalytic Society and the Institute, who was a clinical professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Dodis is a contributor, along with 36 other psychiatrists and mental health experts, who have contributed to the book Assessing President Trump, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, 37 Psychiatrists and Mental Health Experts Assess a President. And there's an interview with Dr. Dodis at Salon, which we'll link to at backgroundbriefing.org. We're going to take a brief station break and back speaking with a Pulitzer Prize winning senior reporter at ProPublica about his investigation, the secret IRS files, trove of never-before-seen records reveal how the wealthiest avoid taxes. Hi there, this is Sean Canan. I'm Director of News and Public Affairs here at WMNF. And this is a pre-recorded message. I wish I were here in person to be able to thank Mary and Arlene for all their decades of service to WMNF. Mary and Arlene do such great interviews on From a Woman's Point of View, and we're sad to see that they're taking a break right now. But I also want to let you know that to continue the tradition of women-centered programming, the Surly Feminists, the Surly Voices for a Revolution, will be on Tuesday mornings at 10, beginning next week. So just wanted to let you know there will be great women's programming at 10 on Thursdays. But I so much want to thank Mary Glennie and Arlene Inglehart for all of their hard work at WMNF. And I very much am sad to see them go. Thanks so much for all your work, Mary and Arlene. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Jesse Eisinger, who is a senior reporter at ProPublica, covering Wall Street and finance. He was a regular columnist for the New York Times Dealbook section, and in April of 2011, he and Jake Bernstein were awarded the Pulitzer Prize for National Reporting for a series of stories on questionable Wall Street practices that helped make the financial crisis the worst since the Great Depression. His latest book is The Chicken Bleep Club, Why the Justice Department Fails to Prosecute Executives, and his latest investigation at ProPublica is The Secret IRS Files, Trove of Never-Before-Seen Records Reveal How the Wealthiest Avoid Income Tax. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jesse Eisinger. Hi, thanks for having me back, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, and there's been an extraordinary response to what you have uncovered, and it is appalling to think as... The rich get richer than ever, at least the super rich get richer than ever. They pay less and less taxes than ever, and I think that's got the American people's attention. But how do you weaponize that information, do you think, to bring about a change? And I know that's not your responsibility, but how do the politicians do that? Yeah, uh, well, we've been very gratified by the reaction and uh, stunned by it. Um, it's been There's been global pickup, uh, more reaction to this story than I think anything else I've ever done. Um, but you're absolutely uh, right that we're not advocates. Uh, we don't um, advocates 
advocate for specific policies. Um, and uh, we may write a little bit about how to solve for various things later, but this time we just wanted to lay out what the problem was. There are solutions that various politicians have offered um, a wealth tax obviously from Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders that's been one solution offered and um, there are pluses and minuses and uh, people who criticize those for various reasons and then Ron Wyden has a wonkier proposal to tax what are called unrealized gains the appreciation in stock that hasn't actually been sold um, and, uh, you know, people criticize that, too. Uh, the question is whether any of these things can get traction in our Congress today. And Senator Van Hollen also has a, a surtax as well. So there are plenty of choices, but the infrastructure package that Biden is trying to sell, it depends upon raising taxes and the Republicans had a, a dialogue through Senator Capito with Biden, which Biden finally ended because he felt that he was being strung along because at the end of the day, the Republicans won't raise taxes. So the battle line is over raising taxes as far as the Republicans are concerned and sticking to the big tax break that they gave the super rich in uh, Trump's big tax break. So they're the battle lines, right? Yes, it, you know, essentially that's true. Of course, there's a battle line around the size of the package as well. Now, the Democrats could embrace uh, deficit spending. Um, uh, the Republicans, when they passed the tax uh, cuts that you refer to in 2017, didn't have, you know, uh, any pay-fors or uh, um, anything like that. They were just tax cuts, and they uh, added massively to the deficit. They didn't spur growth, but an infrastructure plan arguably would spur an enormous amount of growth. Um, and, uh, and, you know, if now, with interest rates very low, is not the time to borrow um, when is. Um, so that would be one solution. And then the other solution would be to pass tax cuts on a party line basis. Um, and you'd have to get your moderate flank um, to go along with that, you know, the mansions and cinemas of the world. Um, so there are a lot of hurdles ahead for a variety of tax proposals, um, increasing the budget for the IRS used to be a bipartisan thing. Now it's really seen as a democratic priority, um, rescinding some of the corporate tax cut. The Biden administration doesn't even want to go back to the previous uh, rate on corporate taxes. They just want to go kind of halfway, pushing for a global minimum tax. That's a, an effort that uh, Yellen is leading in the re with the rest of the world. Uh, these are all possibilities, but, you know, we have, as everyone knows, uh, a calcified political structure, and to get anything done is very difficult, especially around taxes. Well, what about getting something done around the IRS? As you mentioned, um, it's largely seen as a democratic initiative. And in fact, the Republicans have cut the enforcement budget considerably over the last few decades. And there is a proposal to increase the number of auditors, particularly for the super wealthy, who your report indicated aren't paying their taxes. Uh, my understanding is also when wealthy and powerful people get audited, the IRS actually gives them a heads up about what they want to talk about. I mean, that seems to me to be really <laughs> a policy designed to help the rich avoid taxing. 
there, the, the IRS has been gutted to become a shadow of its former self um, as a series of stories um, laid out that we did, uh, Paul Keel, my colleague, and I did a few years ago. Um, and it has fewer auditors now than any time. Literally, the number is fewer than uh, there were in the 1950s when the economy was a seventh of its size. And so... And they, the chances of being audited if you are a member of the working poor, if you have low income, are greater today than if you have $400,000 or $500,000 in income. So there is an enormous problem. Corporate audits are collapsing. Audits of the wealthy are collapsing. Um, and the audits are a shadow of their former selves. So, yes, there is an enormous amount of solicitousness, especially around auditing the super wealthy, and lots and lots of choke and veto points. There's an entire appeals um, organization within the IRS that functions almost like uh, internal affairs and uh, sides with uh, taxpayers who they call customers um, over uh, the IRS's own auditors uh, often. So um, the IRS is uh, broken and, and gutted, and it's a reclamation effort that would take decade, maybe uh, years and years and uh, many, many billions of dollars. Now, uh, the Biden administration has an ambitious, well-thought-out proposal, and there is sort of bipartisan kind of movement in the, on this uh, or bipartisan kind of um, uh, you know indications of bipartisan support, I would say. For instance, just the other week in the New York Times, a bunch of former Treasury secretaries wrote that uh, the IRS budget should be increased, and that was bipartisan. Uh, Larry Summers, who really is, you know, is a Democrat, but he's dead in the center of uh, American politics, um, has been really promoting this. And it would seem to be popular because you could put the IRS toward getting people who owe taxes to pay their taxes rather than to raise taxes. You could close what's called the tax gap, which is often um, people cheating on their taxes or not paying to the taxes that they owe. And that would seem to be, you know, something that might appeal to people. Now, the Republicans really went after the IRS in 2010 when they had control of Congress and they led the gutting of it and they kind of ginned up some controversies about the IRS to kind of uh, undergird this notion that they should be, uh, they can't be trusted. Um, now with the uh, information that we have obtained um, about IRS and, you know, unprecedented data on the ultra wealthy, they're again saying the IRS cannot be trusted with American taxpayers information um, and using this as an excuse. So maybe on Fortunately, uh, maybe they're just looking for a reason to not support increasing the budget of the IRS, and this is the reason. And again, I'm speaking with Jesse Heisinger, who is a senior reporter at ProPublica covering Wall Street and finance. He was a regular columnist for the New York Times' Steel Book section, and in April of 2011, he and Jake Bernstein were awarded the Pulitzer Prize for National Reporting for a series of stories on questionable Wall Street practices that helped make the financial crisis the worst since the Great Depression. His latest book is The Chicken Bleep Club, Why the Justice Department Fails to Prosecute Executives, and his latest investigation of ProPublica is The Secret IRS files trove of never before seen records reveal how the wealthiest avoid income tax and now the trove that you're referring to jesse um, which revealed that 
people like the richest man in the world, Jeff Bezos, doesn't pay taxes or pays very little. Tesla's CEO, Elon Musk, who just made an extra $120 billion. He, along with Bloomberg, Icon, Joel Soros, paid no uh, federal income taxes. The material that you got has obviously got the Attorney General upset and recently he told lawmakers that he's investigating the source of this massive leak as a top priority. In fact, he said it will be the top of my list. So what's going on there? Is he trying to head off the Republicans who are going to use this as an excuse to try and block efforts by the Democrats to do what's necessary to make this IRS at least work in a little fairer way in terms of getting the rich to pay at least a fraction of their fair share? Well, we're we're being very careful on what we say um, about the source or sources of um, this trove of information or uh, the investigation itself or our position on it. We believe we had a First Amendment, a constitutional right to uh, publish this information because we thought it was in the public interest. Um, and uh, so, you know, I don't have an enormous amount of insight into the investigation itself and wouldn't comment even if I did. But I would say that the Obama administration, the last uh, Democratic presidential administration before this one was aggressive about uh, hunting down leakers and even sometimes prying into journalists' uh, records in order to further those leak investigations. The Trump administration amped that up and we're just uh, reading about the revelations now of the extent to which they uh, sought and got um, journalists' information. Journalists are generally, journalistic organizations are generally appalled by this and feel like it's a violation of the First Amendment and and uh, it's chilling for their coverage and chilling for whistleblowers to come forward to us and tell us about the workings of the government. Um, and the Biden administration has officially said now that they're not going to do anything of the sort that the Trump administration, the Obama, uh, the Obama administration did in, in terms of seeking journalists' records. And we welcome that. We think that is the right decision. And we uh, think that uh, we hope that they hold themselves to that. It's not new that the government would go after uh, what it perceives or uh, assumes is a leaker. I don't know if that assumption is correct, but we expect that they will not go after us. Well, they certainly have uh, during Trump and, of course, during Obama, they did go after the press. But we're learning, of course, that Trump not only went after journalists, uh, he also went after a couple of sitting congressmen on the House Intelligence Committee. But let's talk a little bit now in the last few minutes. uh, And their own lawyer. (laughs) Oh, right, their own lawyer, (laughs) who finally, after two years, testified, uh, which shows you how House subpoenas are not being exactly enforced. But just to go back to what you revealed with these ProPublica extraordinary revelations that came out recently, it's revealed that the wealth of the 25 richest Americans collectively jumped by $401 billion from 2014 to 2018, and they paid $13.6 billion in federal income tax over those years, equal to just 3.4% of the increase of their wealth. And interestingly enough, we've just seen in the last couple of days the ex-wife of the richest man in the world, Jeff Bezos, Mackenzie, his ex-wife, what did she just, or just donated 
billion dollars, largely to yes. community colleges. Yeah, um, she just announced that uh, yesterday. And even though she, what, got 4% of the stock, her wealth has gone up into the billions. So, so she's basically donating a little extra because she's <laughs> earning a hell of a lot more extra, right? Yes, uh, she's uh, into the tens of billions. I think it's it's estimated at about sixty billion now. Um, she can't donate it fast enough. I mean, these fortunes are so incomprehensibly huge that uh, people couldn't give it away in any um, responsible way. Um, there is an answer to um, giant fortunes, um, and that would be to tax them uh, more substantially. That that might uh, be an effective effective way to reduce those fortunes, although you wouldn't be digging them entirely. They would still be uh, billionaires many, many times over, even with uh, one of the you know more aggressive wealth taxes out there. What we tried to do is explain with our calculation using this never-before-seen amount uh, of tax that these people paid, and sometimes they didn't pay, as you just summarized, you know, Jeff Bezos not paying any federal tax in two years, pretty astonishing. Elon Musk, Bloomberg, Soros, Icon, also not paying, you know, paying zero in federal income taxes. But in aggregate, what we were trying to show was that these ultra wealthy people are effectively outside of the tax system, that normal Americans, typical Americans, I and most of the listeners um, get a paycheck and our taxes are extracted from the paycheck and we pay anywhere between, you know, a typical person will pay 14, 15% on that, on that income and income is irrelevant for the ultra wealthy and so what we want to do is measure their taxes paid against their um increase in wealth and when you do that it's three dollars and forty cents for every hundred dollars it goes up and it's much less for some of the really wealthy people like bezos or warren buffett but the ratio between the what the rich earn and what they pay in taxes compared to average folks and working Americans, you've made it clear that, and your, the revelations that ProPublica come out with make it clear that on a percentage basis, working Americans pay a lot more in taxes. In fact, many uh, years ago, Warren Buffett made that point that his secretary pays more as a percentage than he does. But this is also reflected in the wages in, say, corporate America. CEOs get paid an enormous amount compared to the guys and girls that work on the shop floor. And Japan has, has a different ratio, much, much more reasonable pay gap there. The Scandinavians as, as well. Is it something in the American culture that says that we have a winner-take-all culture? You have been listening to the Background Briefing with Ian Masters on WMNF Tampa. Stay tuned for the Surly Feminists of the Revolution with Liz Lanier and Donna Davis immediately following NPR News. And as always, thanks for listening and supporting your community conscious radio station, WMNF, Tampa, St. Pete, Clearwater, and around the world at WMNF.org.